Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Let's read verses 1 through 25, get, get the ideas in our head, and uh, then, then I'll, I'll cry a little bit about the pains I've gone through, and then we'll see if we can teach something from this chapter that, that makes sense. <laughs> All right, chapter 11, verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him, And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. That's important. Who's king right now? Well, it it is Darius, but who else is king right now? (laughs) All right, so which king? When you say there's going to be four kings after Cyrus or Darius? Right, now, most of the commentators start with Cyrus, and they, then they name Darius as a, as, a, as a king that's coming. Well, is he? Now, at some point, Darius is called, so you get to Haggai chapter 1, he's, he's the king of Persia. So, what do they mean? I mean, do they mean when he is no longer king of uh, the Chaldeans, but is actually king of Persia? Do they, do, do they you know, it just, it's... It's hard to be dogmatic about this chapter. But what we try to do is just take the words as they are, teach that. Uh, there, I think that there is some historical influence here that we need to bring into it. So I'm going to tell you what those are, but I'm not going to belabor them. We're not going to have a whole history lesson here about you know, the Ptolemies and the Seleucid you know, empires and how they had all these battles that might or might not fit into what is being said here. Because what happens is the, many of the commentators who mean well, they say, oh, this is this battle. And this is when they had that battle. And, and this daughter is the daughter of this king who was given to that king. But then you go and you look at somebody who studied that portion of history and you try to fit it together. And it's impossible that that's what it could be. Uh, so it's... I do think there's some merit here to naming who the king of the south and the king of the north are. Um, I think that there is, I think that these are going to describe battles between the two. But I don't, I don't think you can say with any confidence 
which battle throughout the history of the of, of Egypt and Syria going back and forth against each other. I don't think you could say, well, this battle is this one and this battle is that one and this battle is this one, which is what the commentators do. They say, well, you know, well, when he went against him with this, you know, this is what happened. Yeah, but you could find a hundred other battles that fit the exact same description. And so it's, it's very difficult to say with any confidence each of the events that are described in chapter 11, which event it's referring to between Egypt and Syria over their, their period of battling each other. And, but there, are some, some significant, there is some, some significant information here that we want to draw out of it and that we want to pay attention to because this is what's incredible about the chapter. And, and again, we're supposed to be reading right now. I'm not supposed to be teaching, but um, th- this is what is, is significant. This is the, these empires that we're going to read about. First, you start, you start with Persia. Then it goes from talking about Persia to the split um, Grecian Empire. And, and, and how many directions does it split? Four. And then two of those four, it's going to narrow it down to two of those four. Well, all four of them battled each other over the years after that split. In, in some way, to some extent or another. But once you get, once you get into chapter 11, it's going to take you from Persia to Grecia to it was split into four. Now let me tell you about interaction between these two because out of one of these two will come the Antichrist. That makes sense. All right, so that's the significance of this. I don't think it's important to be able to go back and say, oh, well, this, this battle that happened here, that, that took place in, you know, uh, 430 B.C. And, and it, it, it's between this king of Egypt and that king of, of um, Syria. It's Antiochus and, and Ptolemy. It's, you know, these two got into a battle and all that. I, I, I don't know that you can do that with any confidence. I appreciate the information that's been offered by, by commentators far more brilliant than myself. And, and I think it's interesting. I just, they, they say it so confidently until you read another commentator who's able to take the historical reality of it and pick it apart and say, it's just not possible that, <laughs> that this fits here. The, the problem with trying to force the historical events into this is it, it causes Bible-believing men, in order to make their narrative fit, become intellectually dishonest. And they're willing to overlook historical realities in order to make their chosen narrative fit this. And, and, and I, don't, I don't want to participate in that. I'm not going to do anything of that sort. I, I just want to teach it as it is. Uh, I don't know how to make the battles between the Ptolemies and the Seleucid empires fit into these, though it may. Does that make sense? Sorry to let you down. I mean, if you thought I was going to come and tell you, <laughs> A, this is this, B, this is this, C, it's just, it's just not going to happen, not with any, not with any certainty. So um, back to verse two. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now here, that, that this immediately throws us into a problem. 
In previous chapters in Daniel, who is the king who would do according to his will? The Antichrist. <laughs> but it's not clear this is talking about the Antichrist. This, this seems to be, when you, when you continue reading, a reference to Alexander. So on one hand, there are, there are references here that make it seem like this chapter could all be future. Then you start reading it and you're like, well, it can't all be future. Some of this has to be historical. And then you start reading the, what you th- the parts you think are historical and you're like, but wait, that can't be historical. That has to be future. And it's like, what, what is going on here? <laughs> All right, so you just have to be very careful. Take the words for, for what they mean and, and what it says. And, um, uh, you, you know, Schofield has a lot of info on this. Larkin has a lot of info on this. Um, uh, I really like reading, um, oh, I can't think of his name all of a sudden, my I think my brain is broken, um, but whatever his name is, he, he's, he's a blessing. <laughs> I enjoy reading his material, but it's all the same thing. It's a massive historical overview of what's taken place here, and they, and they present it all. They present it with great confidence, and their hope is that, that the, if they demonstrate this high level of confidence, it, it's a it's a it's a way of bragging on God. God pre-wrote this history. And that's what they're trying to demonstrate. The problem is, it's just not possible to fit certain historical events into this and make it work and make it make sense. Uh, so, I, I, and I know I've said that already. I'm not trying to belabor it. I'm just, just hoping you feel as insufficient as I do. <laughs> Amen. All right, so... This mighty king will stand and do according to his will, verse 4. And when he shall stand up, now here's where we run into trouble again. His kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. And not to his own posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Now, we're going to talk about this when we get into the verse-by-verse portion of this. But what happened to Alexander's family after... He died. Hmm? They're all killed. Anyone who could ascend the throne was killed. I I read today that within 15 years of his death, his family was dead. (laughs) That's it. Anyone who could have ascended the throne and and kept Macedonia together or Grecia together, they they killed them. And anyone who lived after that, within 15 years, they all died or, or were put to death, one of the two. And so... When it says that not of his own posterity, he had no one ascend the throne after him. And that's absolutely true of Alexander. So this, this could be a, a reference to Alexander the Great. Um, it's hard, again, to be definitive, but it, but it looks like that's the direction the Bible's going here. Um, and then things take another turn for the weird. Uh, verse 5 um, and, and the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Well, who is that? It's just, we went from four kings in Persia to a Grecian king to the king of the south. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just not... 
Now, the passage doesn't eventually tell us who the king of the south is. It gives us some indication. It doesn't tell us. It just gives us a good indication who it is. And so the king of the south appears to be Egypt, and, and we'll look at that. Um, and Egypt is south of Israel. And so it, 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 it fits. It makes sense. Though when you look at the four kingdoms that the, that, that the Grecian Empire was split into, Egypt was not the southern kingdom. <laughs> it was the western kingdom. And Syria is going to be this king of the north, or at least that's, that's what seems to make sense. Well, Syria is north. So is Macedonia. So is Thrace. So which one is it? Well, the one immediately north that had all these battles with Egypt was Syria, uh, which, is, which is a historical fact. And so if we, if, we, if we take this to be Egypt versus Syria after the split of the, of the Grecian Empire, then, th- then that makes sense. And the Antichrist will come out of the king, will come from the kingdom over which ruled the king of the north, which is Syria. Does that make sense so far? No response. Praise the Lord. This is going well already. (laughs) All right. We're going to go over it again. So just just stay with me. All right. Verse 6. And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. Neither shall he stand nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. But out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. And shall also carry captives into Egypt, their gods, all right, so that... This king of the south is going to invade the king of the north, go all the way into his fortress, uh, uh, you know, take from him. Once they defeat him, he's going to steal from him or take from him or take booty. And where does he take it back to? Egypt. All right, so that, that's an indication that the king of the south came from Egypt. That he, that's Ptolemy down in Egypt during this time period. Uh, but then the, the king of the north then would be, would be Syria, who they fought relentlessly, and, um, and that would be the Syrian empire. All right. Verse 9. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land, but his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces... And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And the king of the south shall be moved with choler and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And when he hath taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up. And he shall cast down many ten thousands, but, but he shall not be strengthened by it. For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come after uh, certain years with, with a great army and with much riches. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. 
Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. And the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities. And the arm of the south shall not withstand, neither is chosen, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. Now, who can guess what the glorious land is? Israel. Israel. Now, you got to think about this. You have Egypt to the southwest of, of Israel, right? You have Syria immediately north. They're fighting each other. Where are they going to meet? They got to march down into and through Israel. All these battles that are taking place had to wreak havoc on the nation of Israel that whatever existed at that time, uh, and it went back and forth between the two. In fact, what we just read was the king of the north taking the glorious land, or we're going to see as we go through this, he's going to take the glorious land. So it was under the control of the Ptolemies once it split, but now the Seleucid Empire is going to take it and then the, the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, is going to call an up-and-coming empire known as Rome and say, can you come help us? And Rome says, sure, I'll come help you. And eventually that would cause Rome to just say, we'll just take everything. And eventually they did. Now, it, was, it, was, it wasn't at this time, it was down the road, but eventually they did go in and take everything. Um, verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with, with strength, with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women corrupting her, but she shall not stand on, on his side, neither be for him. After this shall he turn his face unto the isles and shall take many But a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Now, here's, here's where there is a sudden shift in our narrative. Up until this point, it's, it's possible you could make all of this historic and, and none of it necessarily prophetic to us. Now, in Daniel's day, this was all coming, right? So, so some of this has been fulfilled, some of it has not. And so... This is where we have the difficulty is trying to determine in in verses 1 through 20 what is prophetic now, what is historic and has already been accomplished. There there is good reason to believe that verses 1 through 20 may have already been accomplished. There is no way I could sit down and seek out historic events between these battles going back and forth between the king of the north and the king of the south and prove to you that it has. But it seems reasonable to say that that's a good possibility, that uh, these battles between Egypt and Syria 
with Israel at the center have probably already taken place. Now, then this razor of taxes comes. And, and he's, he's part of the king of the north. It, it has, has to do with the king of the north. So we're still in Syria at this point. All right, so so what, what happens is the king of the south attacks the king of the north and, and, um, and is very successful. So the king of the north over time gets angry and wants to get back at the king of the south. So he raises up an army. He goes after the king of the south and then he fails. The king of the, the, king of the south pushes back and pushes him back into his kingdom. But then the king of the south, for whatever reason, doesn't finish the job. And he's, it's like he's like, ha, I showed him. Now I'm going to go back home and celebrate my victory. But you, you still have an enemy sitting there. You're going to leave them to regroup. And that's what they did. They regrouped. They built up their, their riches. They, they became stronger, built their military back up, came back and attacked. This time they made it as far as the, the, the glorious land, Israel. And the king of the south brought his army again, tried to stop them. This time they could not stop the king of the north. The king of the north took that land, but then the king of the south called, called on Rome and said, would you come help us? The king of the north found out about it and said, would you like to marry my daughter? <laughs> we could be friends, you know. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be calling other massive empires into this that could beat us. So, so they, they tried to have this time of peace, and, um, and then, of course, it, it didn't last, it didn't, it didn't hold up very long and they begin uh, actually the king of the north ends up turning away and, and going after the isles and he begins fighting in other places and um, um, in order to facilitate these treaties and these battles and all these things that are going on they begin to raise taxes all right now everybody's mind is immediately going to go well that's, that's got to be Rome well it's not Rome this guy it, it's this is someone in the, the Syrian Seleucid Empire. It's not Rome. Rome hasn't been brought into this yet. They're coming, and the only reason I can tell you about this, uh, this potential uh, ally between the king of the south and Rome is the commentators put it there historically, so I can't even prove to you biblically that it happened. We just have to hope that the historical commentators and the events that they're saying this represents matches, which is a big stretch. It's hard to do. Uh, it seems reasonable, but I couldn't prove it to you with any, any level of certainty. Um, so then the, the king of the north begins fighting in other areas. And, and in order to facilitate all this, uh, taxation is implemented, a form of obviously a form of taxation that was. That was not normal, right? Now, if you were gonna, if you were gonna look throughout history at the country or a country that raised taxes, which one would it be? Hmm? Rome. That's it. Does Uganda have taxes? Does America have taxes? Does Europe have taxes? Did Solomon tax people? What about his sons? So who is this? <laughs> you know, it, it's it, who it is is it, it, it's it, it's directly related to the king of the north. So it's definitely 
This is a Syrian that, that's doing this. We just don't know who it is and when he did it. You're going to go back through the history of the, of the Seleucid or the Syrian Empire and find out when they implemented taxes and say, oh, that's who it was? I mean, it's just, you're going to have a hard time with that. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to fit. Um, and, and I'm not in any way questioning the Bible. What I'm saying is, if this is representative of historical events, we don't have enough information about the historical events to prove that they fit within these passages. Does that make sense? I think the Bible, all the boasting that the commentators do about the Bible, that this is pre-written history, I think is absolutely true. When? I don't know. Because God didn't give us those details. In fact, he didn't say the king of the south is Egypt. The king of the north is Syria. Those make the most sense because it's coming out of the split Grecian empire, which split into four, which would include Syria and Egypt. And Syria is north of Israel. Egypt is south of Israel. And they had some bloody battles where Israel was right in the center of all those battles. So it makes sense. It fits. Uh, we know that the Antichrist is called the Assyrian. There are other numerous references that point to him potentially coming out of Syria. And so here we are in chapter 20. We have this sudden shift, or chapter 20, verse 20. We have this sudden shift. So let's read it again. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in, in anger nor in battle. Neither in anger nor in battle, verse 21, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person. Well, who is that? To whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Who is that a reference to? The Antichrist. <laughs> but so is verse Two, <laughs> or whatever verse that was, verse, verse three. So it seems, right now, verse three fits within the narrative of talking about Alexander coming up and, and he did his own will. Whatever he wanted to take, he took it. Whatever he wanted to conquer, he conquered. He just, nothing could stop him, nothing could slow him down. All right, so that's, that's great. No problem. That fits. I can see that. But then when you get to verse 21, well, now we're talking about something completely different. Now, here's, here's where the complexity compounds. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Which I, I know you were probably excited about. Um, it's now talking about the Antichrist in the latter times, right? Antichrist, that's directly related to the tribulation, Correct. Hasn't happened yet, hasn't come yet, that's all future. But then it's also going to proceed to talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. <laughs> so ask again, how much of this is future and how much of this is history? It's not very easy. And you're probably sitting there thinking, aren't you the teacher? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Maybe today we should all just sit down and read chapter 11 over and over <laughs> and, and not say anything. <laughs> uh, no, I, look, I, I want to be intellectually honest. 
And I want to present to you the questions and the issues that I have with this chapter. Because if I, I could just come in here and say, bless God, this is A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Go home. Take a test. But that's not going to help you. And when people do that, when they try and force things into this, now there's nothing wrong with saying it's possible. I could see that and suggesting it could be. But when you start teaching it dogmatically, you, it, inevitably something you, you, you force into this chapter is not going to make sense somewhere else and you're going to confuse people. And, and instead of helping people and, and leaving the possibilities open for someone who might be able to make more sense of this than you can or that I can, uh, you force the people you're teaching into some narrative that couldn't be proven or couldn't be held up properly on its own. And I don't want to do that. I have no desire to do that. So we'll try to make as much sense of it as we can. So let's, let's read... Let's keep reading from verse 21 down to verse 29, and, and you'll, see, you'll see why. Actually, we'll read down to 30 or 31, and you'll see why. The, 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 it'll, you'll begin to get more context, and it'll make sense that we, we have definitely shifted the narrative here. Something drastically has changed. We're no longer talking about two men fighting each other. We're talking about the Antichrist. All right, so verse 21 And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Verse 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province. And he shall do that which which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, he he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. But he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. Wait a minute. Here we are talking about the king of the south again. All right, so this man has taken the king, the kingdom of the north. Right? Everybody see that so far? And so we're still talking about this interaction between the king of the south and the king of the north. But what we're reading right now is all future. These are devices that will be used by the Antichrist in order to obtain power. All right, so look, let's continue reading. The king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a, very, with a very great and mighty army, and he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. Yea, they that, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow And many shall fall down slain. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. That sounds like politics today. (laughs) We had a G8 summit. That means they all gathered together and spoke lies at one table. That's all that that means. (laughs) Uh, But it shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at the time appointed. Well, what's the end? 
Well, let, let's, let's see. Verse 28. Then shall he return unto his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. And the, at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. Verse 30. For the ships, all right, now you, I understand there's a paragraph marker there, and, that, and that's, that's fine. But you understand that verse 30, when it starts with the word for, it's because of. It's, it's a continuation of the previous verses that we just read. All right, everybody with that in mind, when we continue, as we continue, for the ships of Shittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. Now, multiple times so far, we've read about this covenant he made. Who's he making a covenant with? Well, let, let's, let's keep reading. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. Verse 31. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away what? Now, when does that happen? In the middle of the tribulation. Three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation period. That takes place. And and, and it continues. Um, He'll take away the daily sacrifice, and and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, and such as do wickedly against the covenant. The covenant shall be corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do, do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. All right, so everybody see what's, why, why we point back to this and say that starting in verse 21, this king of the north, starting in verse 21, is the Antichrist. He comes in, he, makes, he takes over the kingdom by flatteries, he begins to make leagues worldwide and calls people to join together and to work together. Then he makes a covenant with Israel and then he breaks that covenant. And it looks almost like he, he tries to blame them for his breaking the covenant, which is, which is what people who use deceit and peace and flatteries do. They make it seem like you did something wrong. Therefore, because you did something wrong, I've got to break the covenant. But it was actually you because you, you caused the covenant to be broken because you did something I didn't like. It's deceptive. It, it, you're going to abuse somebody, but you make them feel as though they are the reason that they're being abused. <laughs> it's dirty. It, it's, 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 it's wrong, but it's what's going to happen. It's what's coming. And so... This is a very complex passage, portion of scripture. And so we'll do our best to make as much sense of it as we can. Um, I, I believe that I have made it as basic as possible so that you have a decent foundation to work with so that you can go on from here and study it yourself. But I am certain I'm not going to answer all your questions. And if you ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. <laughs> That way I, I can forewarn you. You answer my question, I'll, I'll be like Jesus. I will also ask you a question, and then I will answer your question. <laughs> and, and so uh, if you can answer my question, I'll answer your questions. All right. The introduction is very short, <laughs> very short. 
and for good reason. Uh, This passage, again, is very complex and difficult to lay out effectively. It seems, again, that some of this is historical and some is yet future. But it cannot be historical only or prophetic only. Uh, that's That's where the difficulty lies. And this reality makes it, very, makes it a very complex chapter to understand. The chapter presents us with certain pre-written and, and prophetic history between the king of the south and the king of the north. Then it intermingles certain parts of their history, which has already taken place. Suddenly, it suddenly shifts the narrative to the time of the Antichrist. Now, this is common in the Bible. It's not... This is not that unordinary. The Bible sometimes, sometimes in one verse, there's hundreds of years between the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. So having a chapter where, where the Lord just jumps to the end from, from you know, the, the, um, the, the broken up Grecian Empire all the way down to the end of the, the, you know, the coming of the Antichrist, that's not that uncommon. Now, let's look again at verse 1. Let's read it. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to, conf- to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, I made a mistake last week. I alluded to the idea that this was Daniel, but I don't think it is. When you, when you continue reading from the previous chapter into the next, it's the angel. It's not Daniel. It's who's talking to Daniel. Because remember, chapters 10, 11, and 12 run, run together. And, and they, they all piggyback on top of each other. And, and it's one continuous flowing message. And so if you look back. Did I write the verse down? Yeah, 10. Let's just start in verse 14 of chapter 10. Now I come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Now who's that talking about? Who's, that, who's speaking? The angel. He's telling Daniel, I, the reason I came here is to make you understand. And then, of course, in chapter 10, it just ends. He's like, well, I've got to go now. Wait a minute. What did, you make, what, what did you come to make me understand? Well, that's chapters 11 and 12. That's the information that he's being made to understand. All right, so verse 15, and when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb and behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I, then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision of my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. So by Daniel's words, it seems that what we're going to get in chapters 11 and 12, the angel must have given it to him. Because he says, by the vision, am I in this position? Am I in this situation? This is my state because of the vision that you, that you gave me. So it's plausible, it's possible that the angel has already given him this information. He's already gone through this with Daniel. And we're just reading of the physical interaction in chapter 10. We get the actual information in chapters 10 or 11 and 12. It could also be that Daniel is acting this way because he saw that initial vision of the angel or what could be the Lord Jesus Christ who, who appeared before him. So it, it, I, I think it could go either way. Verse 17, <clears throat> excuse me. 
For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me, straightway there remain no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I, I come unto thee? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. Right? And that, that's, man, that, when, you, when you start reading that, and then you go into the next chapter, and you're talking about the kings of, um, the kings of Persia and then the kings of Grecia, it's very interesting because it was this, this angel's coming to give Daniel information that directly relates to Persia and Grecia. And it's the, it's the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia who want to stop him. No, we don't want you to tell Daniel what we're going to do. We got all this stuff laid out. There are things we're going to try and do and accomplish. And, and we don't want you telling him about this stuff. And so they come and they, they withstand this angel. And of course, he has to call upon Michael to get there and to get back. Verse 21. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me. All right, now you see the first part, but I, right? That's the angel speaking, right? I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth me, angel is speaking, in these things, but Michael, your prince, also I, Everybody see that? So it's the angel that's speaking. It's not Daniel. Also, I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, that should set off a whole multitude of ideas in your mind. Does God send, send angels to, um, to help and direct and assist certain kings of the earth or presidents of the earth, or prime ministers of the earth, or whatever. It looks that way. And in order for the angel to do that, they may have to fight their way to get to these kings, or presidents, or government leaders, or whatever the, whatever the case may be. They don't just have free access. So, so last week I alluded to the idea that Daniel was standing to strengthen the king. But I believe that that was an incorrect suggestion. When following the context from chapter 10 and into chapter 11, it's the angel that's speaking with Daniel who stands to strengthen the king. Chapter 11 is a continuation of the understanding given to Daniel. The explanation of the information that Daniel is to understand begins in chapter 10 verse 14 and continues into chapter 11. In this first verse, we see that an angel is being used to strengthen the king of the Chaldeans. Remember, as we progress through the governments represented in the image of Daniel chapter 2, we learn that God is orchestrating the governments and the kings who will be world empires. All right? And we've, we've talked about it numerous times. God says it will be Babylon, it will be Persia, then it will be Grecia, and then next comes Rome. And then after Rome, the Messiah dies, the church age begins, and from that point on until 
Christ returns, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And it just so happens that Jesus is the most violent, and he will come take it by force. <laughs> All of it, not a portion of it. All right, and so until that time comes, though, it's just going to go back and forth. It's going to be England, then it's going to be America, then it's going to be China, then it's going to be Europe, then it's going to be whatever. It's, going to, you know, it's just going to keep going back and forth around the world until, until Jesus Christ comes back and says, okay, you Gentiles are a mess. Get, get, out of my, get off my property. <laughs> it's my kingdom now. And, and he will do that. It is not until the Messiah arrives on the scene that the kingdom of heaven is taken, um, is taken at will by the most violent. Which just said Jesus Christ is, uh, when he comes back, he is not, it is no joke. It's a very serious matter. Um, it doesn't matter who, what, who, it doesn't matter who, who is in charge. That's why I always, you know, I, I try to help Christians who are very government-minded think through some things. If they could just have their form of government, they feel like everything would be okay. Well, if you got your form of government... That means that you are in control of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is going to put down when he comes back. Why would you put yourself in that position? It just, it's, it's not going to work. And then, other, you know, not, not just that, but let's say you got exactly the government that you wanted, the way you wanted, when you wanted. Well, did, did you know that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death? <laughs> Okay, so if you got what you want, the end result of getting what you want is death. We want to do what the Lord wants us to do. And the Lord really, really has that what he tells us to do with government is pray for the king. Ask them to leave us alone and let us worship in peace. That's it. Now, if you live in a country and you can vote and you can participate, you should do that. But. But that should not be your primary objective in life is trying to get the government squared away. The, the word of God has spread sporadically all throughout history under the absolute worst governments you can imagine. Now, I enjoy peace. I'm sure you enjoy peace. And it would be nice to continue to serve God and be able to peaceably do that without my life being threatened or... or being thrown in prison for long periods of time or whatever the case may be. I don't want to do that. I, I have come to enjoy being free and unharmed. <laughs> but that may not always be the case. And we are, look, it's, it's never safe to say because of the current political events of your time that's, that we are nearing the end times or we are nearing the coming of Jesus Christ because all throughout history, those moments have taken place where Christians were probably, probably like, Jesus has to be coming soon because our government is getting so bad. It's just the way governments go. If they ever become good in any way, which you could argue that they never do, but you could argue they, could, they at least become tolerable to some extent at some point in time. But it's inevitable they, they crash. The whole country dissolves. It becomes it either splits apart or it just becomes a shadow of its former self. Look at Italy today. 
Who fears Italy today? That's the Roman Empire. Right? People go there to see what Rome used to be. They don't go there because they're, they're scared of what Rome is today. Greece. Greece recently, I don't know if they actually had to do it, if they actually followed through or not, but just to keep their government open, they had to sell some of their own islands. They're broke. It's, it's, it's not the Grecian Empire it once was. You know, the, the, the Spartans and, and the Athenians and, you know, all these, all these, these great empires historically that existed and then they united together and became one Grecian empire. I mean, that, that, that was an incredible event in history, but it doesn't exist anymore. Now they're corrupt, weak, broke. Uh, there's just nothing to it anymore. It's not what it used to be. Egypt. When I, when I worked in, in I, was, um, I, I was working in Egypt training the Egyptian Air Force how to, how to do certain, certain things on F-16s that, that they had bought from America. There were numerous days they didn't fly because they couldn't afford the gas for their own fighter jets. Well, that's not good. What if somebody attacks you? What are you going to do? <laughs> we'll just hope they don't come on a day when we don't have any gas money. <laughs> that, that's a bit of a problem. All right, now that, that's a far cry from Pharaoh and, and the great power that the Pharaohs had and the things that they were able to co- accomplish historically. Um, I mean, you could just go down the list. These empires, they rise and they become powerful. And, and for, for the great empires, the, the real world powers, the standard lifespan is about 300 years and it's over. About 300 years, give or take a few, and they, they fall apart. All right, now, there, there have been some exceptions to that. Uh, Rome ruined the world for <laughs> 1,500 years. Right? So that, that's a little different. But, you know, we're, we're talking about, we, we, talk, we often talk about America and what, what it's done. As a world empire, I mean, it's, it's just over 300 years old. It's, it's just about that time. It's coming. It's right at that 300 mark where things fall apart. And it just... It's like they rise to great power and wealth, and then they're like, oh, this is good. <laughs> Let's stop working. Let's forget what a man is. Let's forget what a woman is. Let's throw out everything that caused us to get where we are and pretend like we don't need them anymore, and then it, then it all falls apart. It collapses. And, and so that's what's, that's what's coming. And, and that's how, that is the unfortunate flow of nearly every great kingdom or empire or country that has existed on the earth. And I don't want to see my country collapse. I don't see America fall from its, can you call it glory? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what you call it today. We have a president who can't form a sentence. We have people who don't know what a man and a woman is. We, I mean, we're, it's, it's really in bad shape right now. Right? And so we don't know where it's going to go from here. This next election is really going to probably speak loudly and, but we don't know which direction it's going to be speaking. <laughs> so pray for America. <laughs> uh, we, we have some troubles. Um, but that, that generally seems to be the, the ebb and flow of these things. You, you, you build up a big enough um, 
supply of money and, and power, and then you become the most violent. And nobody wants to touch you. Nobody wants to mess with you. Um, you know, the, the American military is still a military you don't want to play with. If whoever's in charge of America right now, it's not, nobody knows who it actually is, if they decide to come after you, you don't want to toy with the U.S. military. It, it's just, it's a monstrous machine that would wipe you off the map. Look, they, the U.S. military, under decent leadership, took Baghdad in 24 hours. That is unbelievable. They landed, organized, 24 hours, we own your country, we own your capital. Now what are you going to do? Well, we're going to do what you want. <laughs> what do you want us to do? <laughs> Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It's like, it, you know, uh, that, that's the way those things go. But a powerful military under weak leadership is not going to go very far. And that's what we've got. And that's a scary idea for the world because in America, for all its faults, an unstable America means an unstable world. A stable America means a, a prosperous and stable world. That historically has been how it's gone. If America's profitable, if America's thriving, the whole world gets to go up with it. Now, I don't know how it came to be that way. And, and I'm not boasting because I'm from there. I will be very honest with you about the, the good and the bad of my country, because there are both, and the good is very good, and the bad is unbelievably bad. You can't have both together. You need, you need good and maybe a little bit of bad in order to maintain, but you can't be unbelievably good in some areas and unbelievably bad in other areas, because that unbelievably bad is going to drag you down. So whatever is good about America uh, currently, it, it's dissipating rapidly. And, and that's a scary thought. It's a scary thought for the world. You don't want communism to be the dominant power in the world. Whether you like America or not, it's not I, I don't care. It's none of my business. But what I can tell you for certain, you don't want communism to be the world power. Every time communism takes over... A country, a city, anything, it destroys it. It kills its own people from the inside out. It imprisons them. It locks them away unreasonably for no reason for years. I mean, we, we, we talked a few weeks back about that whole list of, uh, of wars and then how, those, how two world wars don't even compare to... Three communist leaders. Two world wars, about 110, 120 million people died. Just three communistic leaders, socialistic leaders, take you up to about 180, 200 million people dead just from their policies. You don't want communism to take over this world. Politically speaking, what would be great is one of two things. Either a healthy America or Jesus Christ <laughs> coming back and putting it all down so we don't have to deal with any of it anymore. Because even a healthy America comes with its faults. There's, there's no perfect government or system that's going to come in and, and bring world peace and save the world. But certain forms of government will allow the rest of the world to thrive to some extent and to grow and to be better than, than others. 
And you don't want capitalism, or excuse me, capitalism. That's, that's not a Freudian slip, I promise. <laughs> you don't want communism. I was going to say something about America being capitalistic, but that's, that's really questionable anymore, whether we are or not. And, and when you have a society that's free to start business, that's free to move and roam, and you have a decent set of laws, and those laws are enforced in a just way, that, that society just thrives. Everything goes well. Again, we're not saying it's a godly place and that, that it's somehow equivalent to Jesus Christ on earth. It's not. What I'm suggesting is that that's the place where you have the most freedom, where you have the most prosperity, where you have the, most, you have the best health care, where, where things just keep moving in a, in a generally positive direction for the masses. And then there are other governments that, that fully expect to imprison you and, and to take from you. And so all that is in verse 1. Now, it is not until the Messiah arrives on the scene that the kingdom of heaven is taken at will by the most violent. But during the time of, of Daniel, a specific plan with regards to the kingdoms of the Gentiles is in place. And we, we talked about that. The Lord said, Nebuchadnezzar, he's first. Cyrus is coming after. Grisha is coming after that. Rome will come after that. After that, whoever's the most violent, they're in charge. Listen to them. And, and that's the way it's been. Now look at verse 2. And now will I show thee the truth. All right, so who, who's speaking? Hmm? That angel, same angel, still speaking. He's telling, telling Daniel what it is he came to make him understand. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold... There shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. Now, again, the commentaries, they tell you who, these, who they believe these four kings are. And, and I, I've sort of settled on a possibility, which I'll, I'll name here in a moment. But it's funny because you, when you read the commentaries, they kind of argue with each other. And so... The popular narrative became the four kings are these four men, and they name four men. And, and then somebody accidentally tells the truth and says, well, between the third and the fourth, there was a king, but we don't believe he was a valid king of the, of the Seleucid Empire, so we don't count him. You don't get to do that. Now, when I read that, this is what I hear. The king who, who is between the third and the fourth was weak and poor. But the fourth king was really rich. So we, we need to get rid of that king between the third and the fourth so that the fourth king can fit our historical narrative. And so they find some reason to say that that, that, that king, the actual fourth king, is invalid because he stole the kingdom or he poisoned somebody or he did something to come to the kingdom. But what other empires are you going to discount the king or the queen because they poisoned the person that they took over for? Because there's numerous of them all throughout history. Are you just going to do that in this case? Or are you going to do it everywhere and every time? And they're not going to do it everywhere and every time. They're going to do it in this case because they need that fourth king to be rich and powerful. <laughs> you can't do that. That makes, that makes no sense. That's dishonest. And, and we don't want to be dishonest. We want to try and present as honest a presentation of these realities as we can. Now... 
This takes place under the reign of Cyrus through Darius the Mede, who is said to be the king of the Chaldeans. And yet the Lord informs Daniel there will be four more kings uh, in Persia. This could be viewed, again, I'm not saying this is definitive, but it's possible. This could be viewed as Cyrus, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and then Darius. It's just, I, I can't be certain about that. So, a few commentators make this suggestion. I, I could kind of see it, but then there are other problems with it. Uh, because where does that put Darius the Mede? Is he included in this? Is he the same Darius who became the latter Darius? Which historically they would say he's not. Biblically, there's some indication it could be, but it's not definitive. And so it's very difficult to say for sure. But it's possible. Though the passage does not say for certain. The fourth king, believed to be Xerxes, will stir up trouble between Persia and Grecia. Now it is, here's the good and the bad of this. Xerxes absolutely stirred up trouble between Persia and Grecia. Xerxes is the one who kept invading the Macedonian Empire and went in multiple times, invaded multiple times, and uh, certain times he took, proper, uh, took, took territory, other times he was pushed back, and, and so these battles went back and forth and went on and on for, for a long time. Um, but here's the, here's the problem that we have. All right, it, it's, it's a problem that we just need to recognize, but it may not hinder what we just said about, about this being uh, Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and, and Darius, or potentially. Um, it, it's just hard to say definitively. Here, here's the problem. Um, the fourth king, believed to be Xerxes, will stir up trouble between Persia and Grecia. And the problem with this is that, with this narrative, is there are 150 years between Xerxes and Alexander the Great, <laughs> which is a notable detail. <laughs> now, here, here's where, again, you've got to be honest on both sides, all right? You can't just, that, it doesn't mean what these men have suggested or, or, or even what the Bible is saying that this couldn't fit. Because it didn't say that the fourth king would stir up trouble between Grecia and Persia. And it, it doesn't say that there wouldn't be a, pace of t- a period of time between the two. It is an absolute fact that Xerxes provoked Grecia violently. I mean, he went in multiple times and, and attacked different... He burned Athens to the ground at one point. Uh, he, he had invaded Greece and the, the, the Athenians had uh, pulled back because they didn't have a, a strength big enough to... When Xerxes came in, he brought... The, the, the uh, estimations are 250,000 to 1 million men with him. So that's what was coming after you when he came. <laughs> and so they didn't have a force big enough to, to fight that. And of course, all the Macedonian kingdoms, the, the Spartans, the Athenians, the, the, you know, all, all the different um, uh, people groups throughout Macedonia, what, what we now know as, as Greece, they all fought each other and hated each other. So as Persia kept attacking, that caused them to unite. And it was Xerxes who really played, who really caused that to happen. They began, they made a Congress. They began uniting together. They got behind Sparta. Sparta was the, without a doubt, one of the most 
powerful fighting forces to ever exist. It was just an incredible, it was a, a city, possibly, you could possibly call it a country, but definitely a city within Macedonia. Their goal was to, was to produce fighters. That's it. And so all of Greece united behind Sparta, made them the head of, of this fighting power, and so they were able to withstand many of the advances by Persia. But it was very difficult. And so Xerxes did cause this tr- Xerxes did get this stirred up, but that doesn't mean there couldn't have been, or that the Bible is not including the long period of time between Xerxes and Alexander, where these two went back and forth and had constant trouble. Because as soon as Alexander united Greece... He went after Persia immediately. He was fed up. Uh, All of Greece was fed up. All they needed was a uniting figure, which as warring tribes, they they failed to to have. It didn't exist. But once they got that, they were a fighting force that that the world had to reckon with. Alexander, with a small military, just took things at will. I mean, when he decided to conquer something, he'd just go take it. There was nothing you could do to stop him. All right, so there's 150 years between them, which, which is significant, should not be overlooked. It does appear to be true that Xerxes was the fourth king. It's very possible. He was rich. He did invade Greece repeatedly. But we also have to believe these four are the men spoken of, and we have to accept the 150-year span of time that produced several other Persian kings. There were other Persian kings after Xerxes. Now, again, the Bible didn't say there would only be four kings. It's just telling us about the four kings that would come after, or that, that would come after this point in time that the angel is speaking. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that there wouldn't be a span of time between the fourth king and the coming of Alexander or the, or the final point at which Alexander takes over. So it, it still fits. It's just not... As tight as we would like it. Which doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you got to be gracious and dealing with it. And, and be intellectually honest in dealing with it. Now the passage does not say there will only be four kings in Persia. So it is possible the Lord wanted us to know what these next four kings would do to provoke Grisha. I think that um, it's possible that that is ultimately the point. The Persian kings stirred up Grisha, and God used that to bring in the next kingdom, the next empire. And um, Alexander did that. Now, in previous chapters, we discussed the historical fact that Alexander became king of a united Greece. And due to previous injustices by the Persian empire against Greece, Alexander went after Persia. We do know that eventually Alexander came along. He took Persia under Grecian control. After Alexander's time passed, excuse me, his kingdom was split into four separate kingdoms, just as the Lord says here in God's word, which reminds us that if God can tell us history in advance, he can also tell us how to live our lives in a profitable manner. Just a little practical note there. Um, So the things we do know, Aside from some of the suggestions, um, we know the Bible says, without a doubt, four kings would stand in Persia starting after this point in time in Daniel's life. There's no question about that. 
We do know that that fourth king is going to be rich and he's going to stir up Grisha. He's going to go poke the bear. (laughs) And he did that. Well, a Persian king did that for sure. Whether it was Xerxes or not is a small matter. If I can't name, name which king God is talking about that did it, it doesn't matter. It happened. All right? And then we do know that Alexander became the king of Grecia, and we do know that his kingdom was split into four. All that is absolute fact. Historical fact and biblical fact. Um, there, there's, there's no disputing those things. Now, who it was and when they did it and how they did it, I mean, that, that is highly debatable and hard to say this is how it was. And so I, I just wouldn't take, personally, I, I'm not going to take a position that says it has to be like this. Like, you don't know how it is. <laughs> so what I can tell you for sure is what the words written there, that's what happened. Who it was, your guess is as good as mine. Maybe we can all put, our na- put some names in a hat and we'll draw it out and we'll say, that's who this was and that's who that was. And <laughs> you know, that, so that it is reasonable to say this is Egypt versus Syria. This is Ptolemy versus the Seleucid Empire. All that is reasonable. Uh, it is reasonable that it could be Xerxes that, that provoked the Grecian Empire, though it was years later before Greece uh, united to the extent that they could do something about it. 150 years later, give or take a few. Um, But it's possible. It's very reasonable because what Xerxes started, the Persian kings just kept doing. And and they just wouldn't leave Greece alone. Uh, Once these kings get a taste of conquering the world, they're not going to leave you alone until they take you. And so he went out and tried to do that. All right, verses 3 and 4. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his prosperity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Now, it is possible this is a reference to Alexander. There are some characteristics here that seem to fit well with what we have already read about Alexander from previous chapters. Something the Bible often does when establishing its prophetic narrative is to jump from one scene to another. As we previously discussed, there may be a large amount of time between the fourth king of Persia and the coming of Alexander. That's not only true about that. There may be a large period of time or there may be a massive period of time between verse 20 and verse 21 or verse 20 or verse 19 and verse 20. Um, and, and, and we're going to make sense of that when we get there. You'll see that um, Daniel 8 talked about the latter times of these kingdoms, speaking about these four that came out of the, the, the Grecian Empire. Uh, so so that, that seems to fit, make sense of what's taking place there. But... Back to verses 3 and 4. Look at at Daniel 8. And let's read verses 3 through 8. And just remind ourselves what it says. 
Verse 3, Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw a ram pushing westward, and northward, and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there, there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will, and became great. That sound familiar? Is that not exactly what we read in, in chapter 11 about this reference to Alexander? Verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, an, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the, of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he, be, and he, came, and he, he came to the ram that had two horns, which, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. Again, that's just repeating terminology. Now again, there, there, there may not be a direct connection, so we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but he's moved with choler against him, and smote the ram... And break his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now, what would you do to somebody who had been murdering and raping and killing your people and burning your cities to the ground for hundreds of years? If you suddenly, the, the, the table was turned and you had all the power, how would you respond? <laughs> With Kohler. <laughs> and that's what Alexander did. He, he didn't just defeat him. He threw this ram down and, and stamped on him. And just, just went after him. Gave it to him. Verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four what? Winds of heaven. Again, does that sound familiar? All right, now look. Verses 20 through 22. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his own power. Now, here's what's interesting. Look, look again at verse 23. Well, we didn't read verse 23, so let's read verse 23. And in the latter time of what? What kingdom? Well, not anymore. What kingdom is it talking about here? The four. The four. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding, dark sentences shall stand up. Who is that? It's the Antichrist coming out of these four kingdoms. So in, in chapter 11, we're, we're getting infinitely more detail about the coming of the Antichrist, but we're giving information that took place prior to it. But again, the question is, 
prior win. So it's very clear in the Bible that the Antichrist is going to come out of one of these two kingdoms. He's coming out of one of the four, which in chapter 11 is narrowed down to two. And it's, it's the kingdom that's in the north, which appears to be Syria, which makes sense with him being called the Assyrian and, and the other connections that he has to Assyria throughout the rest of the Bible. Remember that the four kingdoms that came from Alexander, they all exist again today to some extent by name. You have North Macedonia, Thrace is spread all through uh, Bulgaria, Turkey, uh, that, that, that whole region up there. North Macedonia is alive and well today, which is amazing. Just, just suddenly, randomly, multiple countries in Europe split and one of them decides to take the name North Macedonia. <laughs> what are the chances? Syria still exists. Egypt still exists. All four of them, to some extent, still exist by name today. All right, so, so that, that's, that's who we're looking for. Two of them being Egypt and Syria, and the Antichrist will come from one of these two. All right, so it, it, the, the most reasonable suggestion is going to be that, that the king of the north, that kingdom, is Syria. There, there are no historical battles, assuming that, that it is true that part of this is historical and has already taken place, which I think is reasonable to say at least up to verse 19, maybe 20, has already taken place. Um, assuming that's true, there were no historical, real historical battles between Egypt and Thrace or Egypt and Macedonia. There might have been a few, but not to this extent where they just despise each other and hate each other and, and want to get rid of each other. Uh, if I remember correctly, Thrace and Macedonia sort of went after each other. Egypt and Syria went after each other. There may have been some cross battles here and there, and, uh, and, and some of them may have even been lasting, but, but there, there's a long history between Egypt and Syria going after each other and Israel being right at the center of it all where, the, where they meet often for battle. But notice how the narrative about Alexander's kingdom in chapter 8 it just suddenly shifts. We go from Alexander's going to take out Persia. Alexander's going to split into four kingdoms. Here's the Antichrist. <laughs> now, we know that that didn't happen that succinctly. This is over a long period of time. And so when we're looking at these things, we've got to keep that in mind because the running narrative in chapter 11 makes it seem like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and then that was Monday through Friday. <laughs> it's like, well, no, that, that's not how it happened. That was years of fighting and, and, and battles. In a moment's notice, we go from the four kingdoms that came from Alexander the Great to the latter time of their kingdom. Now, what, what would that indicate? Because it, it talks about the latter. So verse, look, look at chapter 8 again. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom. So we're not in verse 20, 22. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of, out of the nation, but, but not, not in his power. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full 
A king of fierce countenance and understanding, dark senses shall stand up. So what would that indicate to us about these four kingdoms? Not everybody at once. Raise your hands or something. I mean, you just overrunning me here. Hmm? The latter time of their kingdom, the Antichrist is going to come out of their kingdom in the latter time. These kingdoms are coming back. In order for there to be a latter time of their kingdom, in order for the Antichrist to come out of them, they need to exist again. And I know many of our brethren, if not all of our brethren, I'm probably the only weirdo that doesn't believe it's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire and all of that. I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that Rome might have some part in it. And there's some evidence that Rome could potentially be a part of it. But this is telling you that there will be a latter time to this kingdom, which is four kingdoms divided that came out of, out of the Grecian Empire. And that the Antichrist is going to come out of one of those kingdoms. And all roads in that regard point to Syria. Um, so you take that for what it is. <laughs> it just seems to be the case. It seems to make sense. Uh, the Lord seems to be telling us that maybe these same four kingdoms that came from Alexander will have a latter time. They, they will come back to some extent. And like we already said, three of them as countries already, already exist on the map now today. Um, and then Thrace is the only one that um, it, it's a little more obscure. It's, it's not as defined, uh, but it's there. There's a, uh, what do they call it? Um, I forgot the word, but Greece um, and Certain parts of Bulgaria and, and, and all that, right? Just north of Tur- Turkey and just north of Greece, there's an entire section there that's sort of like an unincorporated zone. I forgot what they, I forget what they call it. But they, they're calling that, that region, that area, it's like a shared area between Greece and uh, certain of those European countries in that area. They call it... No, it's, it, they call it Thrace. But it's like an economic zone that they all participate in. And then they call it Thrace. It's very interesting. Now, what does it mean for prophecy? Probably nothing. It's just very interesting. I mean, we don't want to make more of it than it actually is. But, but it's kind of wild that that stuff exists. When Thrace, Macedonia went away a long time ago, both were destroyed, taken over, and became completely different countries... Um, Syria still exists, but it's not what it used to be. Egypt is definitely not what it used to be. But all of them now are, are making this comeback. That's very interesting. Um, the latter time of these kingdoms will facilitate the rise of the Antichrist. And the Lord, he means the Lord is telling us these kingdoms will have a latter time. Now, does it mean they're going to come back as they were? Will it, will it be an exact duplicate? I, I, I don't know. I'm not telling you there's going to be a revival of the four kingdoms <laughs> and, and all of that. I'm just saying that according to this verse, there will be a latter time to these kingdoms. And in that latter time, the Antichrist will rise out of one of them. Look at Daniel 11, verse 4. <clears throat> Still talking about Alexander. When he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. 
and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not of his own posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for uh, others beside those. So posterity refers to your descendants. And we, we've talked about how Alexander, I mean, this is an, this is an intricate detail the Bible provides. And, and that's one of, the, one of the details that, again, makes it fairly safe that we're talking about Alexander. So we're talking about the king of the Grecian Empire. And, and before Alexander, there was no Grecian Empire. His father was king over Macedon, which was a, uh, a series of warring states who hated each other. They were fighting against each other. Then Alexander comes along and unites them under one king and they become Grecia. They become Greece. And it just became a powerhouse that you didn't want to mess with. And it was really one of the first conquering powers from the West. Until then, it was all from the East, from Persia and you know, Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar. It was Cyrus. It all, all the world empires came from the East until Alexander came, then it shipped to the West, and it hasn't really left the West since then. The, the West, for, for, in terms of overall Gentile power, the West has been the seat of Gentile power basically since Alexander. Alexander came, then Rome came, and, and you know, there, there was some back and forth there between Rome and, and Greece, and then Rome lasted a long time, 1,500 years or so. Um, and then it just continued to shift to Northwest Europe until it made its way to London. Then there was a time where England, you could, the sun didn't set on England's empire. I mean, it was just massive. Uh, that, that lasted for a while, and then they decided to colonize America. We kicked them out, and we became the world empire. <laughs> yeah, the sun began to set on their empire. <laughs> so... Um, and so that, that's where things have been in terms of world power since then. It, since World War II, it's basically been America as, as the, the most dominant. But where is it going to go next? Who knows? It, it, it's coming to a point where it looks like it might be up for grabs. And I hate that, but it looks like that's coming. And so we all need to be praying that whoever takes it, is fair and just and will leave everybody alone. But that may or may not be the case. <laughs> uh, so this, this is an incredible detail about Alexander. And, and we talked about how his family was, was murdered after his death and then his kingdom was split. So it is certain that none of Alexander's family took over after him. And, and you got to remember... This was their first king. They had no idea what a transition of power would look like. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? <laughs> You've only had one king in Uganda. and so <laughs> uh, You don't know what a transition of power is going to look like. Now, but for him, I, I, there was not, and what I mean by that is there was not this, you know, aristocratic setup for his family, you know, that they were accustomed to, like the kings in England passed on to their family for centuries. And so they, there was an understanding about how those things were going to work. It didn't always go right. You know, sometimes there were problems, but there, there was a general understanding of 
who was going to be taken over. And, and there were strict um, uh, standards and, and customs as to how those things would be done. Alexander was the first king. He's like, I just, I became king. I conquered most of the world. Now what do I do? Well, you're going to die and your kingdom's going to be split. That's it. You didn't create a, a process to transfer power, which he was only in his 30s. He probably thought he was going to live another 30 years. You know, he probably had no idea he was going to die so young. And so maybe he wasn't prepared for that. But um, you, if you're going to be a good king, you need to prepare for what's next. If you're going to be a good pastor, you need to prepare for what's next. Who's taking over after you? Don't just leave the church to figure it out. When you get a bunch of people together and you force them to figure it out, it's not going to go well. They're going to pick somebody that fits their desires rather than their needs. Or they can't agree on what they need and they're going to get angry with each other and people get mad and leave and it's just going to be a mess. So the pastor needs to say, I'm, tra- I'm, I'm, I'm investing everything in this young man. And when I'm gone, that's who your pastor is going to be. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the best way to do it. Um, so far, chapter 11 is reinforcing the idea that the Antichrist will come from one of these four kingdoms. But then it's going to narrow it down to two of the four. Now, who remembers what the four kingdoms are? Not you. Somebody else. Who said that? Thrace? Who? Egypt? Syria? Macedonia. Very good. Very good. And so here, we're, in chapter 11, we're talking about uh, primarily Syria and Egypt. And, and with Egypt being the king of the south and Syria being the king of the north. All right. Verse 5. And the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now what follows for several verses are ideas related to certain historical events between the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. Certain battles, both political and physical, took place between them over the years, and this passage explains in part. I want to make sure to emphasize in part. I'm not, I'm not going to... Now, what a lot of the commentators do is they take each section of this and say, oh, this is this battle, and this is that battle, and uh, this is when so-and-so gave his daughter to, to, to that king. And <laughs> you're right back there. <laughs> and, um, and so he gave his daughter to, um, you know, ladies... You just want to be thankful for the times you live in. <laughs> because these guys were like, I'm fighting with this other king. Go get my daughter. <laughs> you're, you're going to marry him to make peace. <laughs> and there was nothing you could say about it. <laughs> you were just sent away. And, and that was it. That was that. Um, now, women had power back then at, at, at times, at different times. You know, one time I was watching a debate between... Two people who were talking about uh, how we just we need more equality for women. Women have been held down for centuries, and um, and one guy asked asked the other guy, you know, 
in, in what way have they been held down? He said, um, you know, they're not allowed to be in positions of political power. He's like, there have been numerous queens all throughout history. And the guy was like, uh, oh, yeah, there have. <laughs> and, there's like, and they had total power. Like they, they were the monarch. Not, not queens as in they were married to the king. I mean, they were the power. That was it. They ran the country. And it's happened numerous times throughout history. And so, um, and it, now it doesn't mean that there were not times where women were, were uh, powerless objects. That, that obviously has happened throughout history. And we thank, we thank the Lord that we've moved into a time in the world where in most places, some places it still happens. Just thank the Lord you don't live in Saudi Arabia. You don't live in, <laughs> in Iraq or, um, you know, some of those places. So anyways, uh, so, so they, they would go back and forth. And twice in this chapter, they're going to use their daughters as, uh, as a offering of peace <laughs> to to their enemy. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not just like, where's the daughter I don't like? <laughs> bring, bring her. <laughs> or the one that calls all the trouble. You're going to stay with our enemy and make him happy. So uh, it's, it's just odd to think about those things because we, we, we're so far removed from those types of ideas. And, and um, the difficulty is that the Bible talks about, about it as though it were one running narrative with no pause or break in the events, but there certainly are. Though it looks like a, a, a running narrative, there are large jumps of time between some of these verses. And, and so you'll need to think about that as you're reading through them because you're going to try and relate two verses together that might be centuries apart, though they follow each other you know, in number. We will try and point out point that out as we progress through the, the chapter. I'm going to teach the chapter the way I believe the Lord has helped me to understand it. But I also recognize the great difficulty in understanding some of these ideas. This complexity makes it difficult to be dogmatic. We understand the king of the south and the king of the north to be referencing their locations against Israel. Israel is at their center. God often does that. Israel is, it'll talk about something being north or south, and, and it's referencing the center as being Israel. And then sometimes even more specific, Jerusalem at, at the center. All right, so, so that, that happens often in the Bible. Oftentimes the Bible talks about people going up to Israel. If you'll pay attention when you're reading about people traveling to Israel, they always go up to Israel. And then when they're leaving, they always go down to Egypt or down to wherever it is they're going um, outside of Jerusalem. Now, what some people would say, well, Jerusalem is on a mountain. That is true. But, that, but so is Bethany. And they still went up to Jerusalem from Bethany. And so uh, it, it's, it's the same idea. That, that what God is saying is that the center of the earth, the center of the world, Jerusalem, Israel, that's the middle. Everything else is north and south with reference to that. It's east and west with reference to Israel. All right, and so we already talked about it. We, we, we mentioned it briefly, but look at verse 16 again. But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land which by his hand shall be consumed. Now what's happening in that verse, the king of the north has regrouped, and he's going down to attack the king of the south. 
And on his way, he runs into Israel. And so this, this puts essentially, uh, again, not definitively, but it looks like this is putting Israel between the two as they're marching on each other. They're either marching through Israel to get to each other or they're, they're having battles that, that, that fall out right there in the center between them, which is Israel. How'd you like to be in that position? It's like, what did we do? We're just like, I'm trying to go to work. I'm trying to raise my family. And you got these two countries on either side of us fighting with us in the middle. <laughs> I'm tired of this. <laughs> and so that, that wouldn't be a great, a great spot to, to be put into. The passage opens telling us the king of the south. Look at verse 8 again, just to get the reference. And also carry captives into Egypt, their gods and their princes and their precious vessels of silver and of gold. And he shall continue uh, more years than the king of the north. Now that's the king of the south who has invaded the king of the north, uh, taken certain items from him as, as his reward, and he brought them back into Egypt. All right, so you can look at this one of two ways. You can say then his starting point was Egypt. His home is Egypt. The king of the south is, is coming from Egypt. Or he just randomly decides to store everything he takes from other countries in Egypt. <laughs> and so it's more likely that he is king of Egypt, this would be a Ptolemy who is in control of Egypt. Uh, This seems to inform us the king of the south is Egypt and the Ptolemies. Egypt is located south of Israel. Part of Egypt, as far west as the Nile River, belongs to Israel by promise of God. So uh, when you look at the current map of where things sit, and, and it's hard to make a clear determination from what currently is there, Because what we know now as the nation of Israel, first of all, it's a tiny part of the promised land that God promised to Israel. Secondly, it was put there by England, not God. So it's still under control of the Gentiles. But it will still give you a decent reference. We know that much more of that land belongs to Israel. And it goes all the way down to the Nile River in Egypt. I mean, that's that's a lot of land that's going to be given back to, 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 to Israel. But Egypt is south. And Syria is immediately north. And so when you see it, um, here, I know you like my pictures. We'll draw you a picture. So if you have Egypt here, you have the Sinai Peninsula here, you have the, the Red Sea running through here, you have Israel here, and Syria is up here. So this is essentially Israel. This is Syria. That's Egypt. That's about how it lays out obviously it doesn't look oh here's a map <laughs> let's see uh, well it doesn't really it doesn't really show anything but but you see Egypt here Israel is on a tiny piece of land there and you see Syria to the north it doesn't even oh yeah, it says Israel but it doesn't really show Israel on the map or it's an odd color it's hard to see the color there but um, it's it's that little sliver of land right there but that's what they currently have that's not, what were you saying? It's blown up Oh, here? Yeah, here we go. There's a portion of Egypt and a portion of Syria with Israel in the center. But that's a tiny portion of what God gave to Israel. So it, it's not a fair representation of, of what we're talking about, though it, 
it gives you the idea. It gives you a decent idea. I think mine, my drawing is better. <laughs> wow, you hate it. Really? So they're, they're eventually going to be given all that back, but after the Lord returns. Um, as, Egypt, um, as Egypt and Syria go to battle, guess who was caught right in the middle of it all? Israel. The nation of Israel. They just get battered. Each, each battle, or every time they march through, they, they stop and say, oh, we'll, we'll take what you have. Uh, it's, just, it's just constant problems because of this, this state of flux, this state of, of, of battle. Uh, this prophetic reality serves as a reminder for Daniel's people that they would exist many days without a king. When you have no borders, you have no country. And so... They have been trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for a couple thousand years now. And, and it's just going to continue uh, until Jesus Christ returns and, and makes it right. Their sovereignty as a nation will not be restored with God's blessing until the Gentiles are put down. And they will be put down, but not yet. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.